The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the battlefront, ask how Boris Johnson's resignation is being received in Ukraine, and we talk to Kyiv-based journalist and translator Alexandra Povoroznik about life in Ukraine, social media, and the meme war against the Russian invasion. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 8th of July, day 135. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and our guest, journalist and translator, Alexander Povorosnik. Dom Nichols is away. I started by asking Francis and Roland for the major updates from the battlefront in Ukraine. The kind of big question is whether or not the Russians have stopped advancing. So the Institute for the Study of War, which is a US think tank, which watches kind of what's going on, noted uh, yesterday that the Russians didn't seem to have either advanced uh, or claimed an advance or assessed to have taken any land for the first time since the war began. And their, their interpretation is they're taking something called an operational pause which means um, refitting, resting your troops, getting them ready for um, the next offensive. Um, and the interpretation is the Russians have, have won the Battle of, of uh, Luhansk region. They're about to regroup to move into Donetsk region. Um, now, Sergei Gaidai, the governor of Luhansk region, um, this morning disputes that. He says there's no such thing, um, no operational pause, absolutely no let up in the shelling. Uh, What has happened, he says, is that Russian ground attacks have slowed down because of these high-precision Ukrainian strikes on Russian ammunition depots over the past couple of weeks, which has slowed down their their supply of um, ammunition, basically. Um, But the consensus seems to be the Russian advance seems to have slowed down a little bit. They seem to be repositioning. Uh, The British Ministry of Defense says that they are um, grouping around the town of Siversk, Um, which kind of anchors the northern part of the new front line um, for their possible next stage. Um, But the consensus seems to be um, the the movement on the front seems to have slowed down a little. Thanks very much, Roland. Francis, would you like to add to that? Well, there's been some interesting remarks from Vladimir Putin in the last 24 hours as well, which I think speaks to to some of the um, issues around this. So he's issued a warning to the West claiming that Moscow has barely started its military campaign in Ukraine. So he says, uh, and I quote here, um, for today we hear that they, he means the West, want to defeat us on the battlefield. What can you say? Let them try. Uh, He said, and I should say that these are in, in televised remarks. Quote, we have heard many times that the West wants to fight us to the last Ukrainian. This is a tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but it seems that everything is headed towards this. Everyone should know that we have not started in earnest yet. So clearly um, strong rhetoric there from the Russian president suggesting that, um, and I think the the timing of this is, is relevant, that any pause in activity should not be read as a stalling of the Russian advance, but rather should be seen in the context of a, a renewed offensive of some kind. But of course, we can't take anything that, that Putin says, um, particularly for a public audience such as this, um, as as being trustworthy. This is almost certainly as much appealing to a domestic audience as it is to a foreign one. And he will be trying to swerve any criticism of, a, of stalls in Ukraine. And so him saying that we've not started in earnest is obviously suggestive that they fully intend to, to go further. Um, I think we can, based on what we've seen of Putin's remarks so far, expect him to continue to to um, continue this war for as long as it takes, which is why, as we were speaking about last time that we were all on the podcast together, the, uh, the, the this is a critical moment in the war. One could even argue a, 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 a turning point, depending on how things go, given 
the morale in 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 ukraine and and the perspective of 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 western powers and how things are going that whether ukraine will be able to score some kind of victory in the short term that will show that that that, that, that moscow don't have the initiative is highly relevant to to i think um how the next few weeks and months will will play out um but certainly interesting re- rhetoric and remarks from 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 vladimir putin which i think will no doubt be causing some concern in kiev and 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 also around um, many of the other western capitals thanks francis roland can i just come back to you 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 talking about talking about the high mars you mentioned that there was some interesting chatter you were picking up on on russian telegram channels can you tell us about that yeah, so we've heard we've heard a lot about the HIMARS um, and a very effective system. Um, uh, as we as we all know by now, it's a long range American multiple um, multiple launch rocket system, which um, is incredibly accurate and has allowed the Ukrainians to target um, places like command posts and ammunition dumps deep, deep behind um, the Russian lines. And the Ukrainians, since these appeared on the field, we were publicly told they'd appeared on uh, June the twenty eighth. Um, and they've been they seem to have been used to to try to disrupt uh, not only Russia's command and control, but also the kind of logistical supply of ammunition to the guns, the artillery that is Russia's main trump card in this war. Um, Sergei Gaidai, um, as I mentioned earlier, seems to suggest that is beginning um, to work. But of course, you know, that they're a useful propaganda tool. So it's difficult to assess you know, how, how much is this working? How much isn't it? But interestingly, if you look at the um, the Telegram channels where, um, you know, Russian war correspondents, Russian soldiers, volunteers kind of kind of speak to each other and their followers, um, they're talking about it too. Um, interesting couple of things. I mean, there's there, there's one post um, which was shared on a on, on a pretty, I mean, Russian propaganda channel, but a fairly reliable one if you want to kind of a kind of view of what's going on on their side of the lines. Um uh, saying the HIMARS is working, um, extremely accurate work on command posts. Losses are very serious. Um, and the, the post added, um, uh, after this kind of thing, um, no one would object to smashing up Bankova. That's the um, uh, Zelensky's office in Kiev, the equivalent of Downing Street, um, or sending a warning shot to Washington, um, reducing it to ashes. So, so serious anger there. Um, another post by... Um, another kind of quite prolific um, uh, anonymous poster doesn't call himself a, a reporter, but, but the kind of character who posts from uh, quite close up to the to the Russian front, um, who argues, look, we should take the HIMARS seriously, but um, we shouldn't panic about it. There aren't enough of them to carry out a single devastating strike against us, but we've got to think about countermeasures. And this guy recommends uh, dispersing targets. So he says these ammunition dumps have to be split up. It's going to be a bit more difficult for logistics, but it's better than losing it all. We need to hide all of our high-value targets like command posts, more camouflage, all that kind of thing. And then he says... Um, the Russian Air Force um, and Russian Special Forces teams behind Ukrainian lines have to absolutely prioritize finding these things, hunting them down and destroying them, which, um, you know, none of this can be verified. Um, you always have to be careful about what's being put out into the, the information space. Um, is it meant to steer the conversation one way or another? But it, it does look like the presence of HIMARS on the battlefield, they're being felt um, and it's certainly being felt psychologically. It's definitely moving to the, the discussion on, on both sides of this war. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Um, Boris Johnson, British Prime Minister, uh, resigned as leader of the Conservative Party yesterday. He's spoken to Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky, reiterating the United Kingdom's support for Ukraine when he quit. Um, This is when I'd quite like to bring in our guest, Alexandra. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. Um, First, Francis, can I just ask um, your thoughts? How how has this changed in the past 24 hours? And then we'll come to Alexandra, because we'd really like to hear your thoughts on how has Boris's resignation uh, been been received in in, in Ukraine? Yes, well, yesterday on the podcast, obviously it was breaking news of Boris Johnson's resignation. And we, we spoke about this question mark over whether he would be staying for a matter of days, hours, weeks or months. As things currently stand, we are expecting him to remain in post as a sort of lame duck prime minister, I suppose you would say, um, until a new leader can be chosen. Normally that process would take up to two or three months. And the current understanding is that, that, that 
the new Prime Minister will be in post by October. So that's still considerable time um, when measuring this in terms of, of, of the war in Ukraine. Um, a lot could happen in that time. But this still isn't guaranteed. There's a lot of consternation amongst um, Tory grassroots and also um, amongst uh, Conservative MPs about Boris Johnson staying in office any longer than necessary. And there are manoeuvres, we understand, for him to be forced out much sooner. So um, there are a lot of unanswered questions on this. But I think as things stand, we are expecting him to remain in office, certainly for a, a matter of several weeks. Um, you mentioned a conversation yesterday that took place between President Zelensky and Boris Johnson. We understand that was very, very cordial indeed. In fact, possibly even ending with uh, Boris Johnson saying, you're a hero, Vladimir, everyone in the UK loves you, to which uh, President Zelensky replied, you're a hero, Boris, everyone in, U in Ukraine loves you. And I think that it will be a real challenge for the next Conservative leader to build a similar rapport, such has been the support of Boris Johnson for President Zelensky. But that seems like a good time to bring in our guest and to hear her perspective on, on what's happened. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here. Um, well, you know, it's fascinating for me because, um, you know, the the response of, of, you know, Ukrainian general public on social media um, to um, Johnson's resignation and the response of, you know, British people um, I know and, you know, I follow online, it's been, you know, vastly different. And it's like, you know, it's like um, seeing two parallel universes because Ukrainians are mostly convinced that Johnson is a hero and that, you know, uh, you Brits uh, were really lucky to have him. And there's a lot of grumbling going on and um, even a lot of conspiracy theories, I'd say, because a lot of people in Ukraine are very concerned that, you know, his resignation uh, will sort of lessen the UK's uh, support for Ukraine. And a lot of them are, you know, saying that maybe it's, you know, somehow a result of Russia's interference that, you know, maybe Russia has, you know, bought off some uh, some British politicians and convinced them to force uh, Johnson into resigning because he is in Ukraine. He's hugely popular. Um, we even have a hugely popular chain of bakeries which have a croissant named after Boris Johnson. So, a lot of people in Ukraine are huge, huge fans. And it's 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 really weird seeing, you know, the difference in the way that, you know, he's being discussed and, you know, in British media and in Ukrainian media and just by Ukrainian uh, users online. Well, thank you very much for that, Alexandra. Um, I realise we, we sort of went to you with a question, but would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background um, and what's your experience of, of the invasion been so far? Uh, okay, sure. Um, well, I'm a film critic uh, based in Kiev, um, or at least I sort of was a film critic because there's not really um, much time and you know much space to write about movies at the moment since you know our cinemas have just reopened um, a couple of months back or even weeks. So, um, and as for my experience uh, with the invasion so far, um, there's a great Ukrainian phrase which uh, a lot of people are repeating nowadays and using it, it goes something along the lines of, uh, well, it would be sinful to grumble or it would be sin uh, sinful to complain. And it's a phrase that people use when, you know, when they're doing not really well, but they realize that a lot of people are in much worse positions. And that's pretty much, you know, it pretty much sums up my experience because I have been forced pretty much to flee my home uh, with my family. Uh, but everyone's everyone's alive and well, at least in my family. Um, so so as far as, you know, as, um, as Ukrainians are concerned, I'm one of the lucky ones, definitely. Um, because I, I definitely wouldn't have called myself uh, lucky um, in this situation, you know, uh, previously, but just comparing stories uh, with my friends and, you know, relatives, um, I do realise that I've been very lucky so far. Uh, so, yeah, as as lucky as Ukrainians can be. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about Ukrainian social media? What's your experience of it been so far in, in the war? 
Well, um, I think it's a fascinating case because uh, I don't think we've, you know, um, as a society, we've seen um, conflicts of such a scale with, you know, social media playing quite a large role like this because there's obviously, you know, there's the good uh, and there's a lot of good, you know, uh, about social media and its influence on the war so far. Um, a lot of Ukrainians are turning to social media to share their experiences, to sort of debunk Russian propaganda. Um, and I think that uh, social media has finally given a lot of Ukrainians the agency they were denied for quite a long time because um, whenever you see these huge sometimes outlets spouting, you know, um, Russian propaganda or, you know, slightly um, untruthful versions uh, of what's happening. Um, and on social media, immediately there'll be hundreds of Ukrainian users who, you know, who are arguing with that, who are sort of debunking all of that, who are trying to give their version of events. So I think for a society which um, in the West has sort of been, you know, denied agency for a long time because most of the coverage of Ukrainian affairs, it came from Moscow. Um, and I think even now, a lot of the people we turn to um, as experts on Ukraine, they're usually people who've, you know, um, who have a degree in Russian studies or who spent time in Russia as journalists. So uh, I think the West has looked at Ukraine through a very sort of uh, Russia-centric lens. And social media is allowing Ukrainians finally to sort of turn that narrative around. Um, and it's great. That's, that's, that's something really good um, that's come out of it. And it does help Ukrainians, you know, get support fast for various initiatives. And it makes fundraising so much easier. Um, so in that respect, social media has been a godsend because it's much easier to, you know, whatever you're looking for, whatever a certain battalion or unit needs, you know, people on social media will you know, make fundraisers or whatever, or sell their art, or, you know, do charity work to raise money for that battalion and to, to have it meet its needs. So that's been definitely very, very helpful. Um, but also, of course, there's, there's a downside to all of this. Um, social media does, in my experience, and from what I've heard, um, you know, talking to my fellow Ukrainians, is that it does sort of amplify all of these you know emotions and feelings and you do have this feeling that you're living in this you know constant whirlpool of news of you know great news bad news you constantly you know see um, a lot of you know a lot of people share uh, about their loved ones dying and we might not know these people directly but it does feel like we're constantly being bombarded by you know uh, mentions of grief, mentions of you know people dying, triggering images, and and it is hard to deal with. It is a lot like being on a nonstop emotional roller coaster, you know, for months because you know we wake up uh, in the middle of the night and we you know check the news or we check social media, and uh, it's it's just nonstop. It's this constant, constant wave of you know all sorts of emotions, and I think psychologically, uh, I. Th feel like, you know, we will need to have studies on how that, you know, affects our generation and, you know, the people living in Ukraine right now, because it definitely, you know, it, it is very traumatizing and, and difficult to deal with. Can I ask you quickly about memes? Um, what are the what are the sort of big Ukrainian memes? Um, and how have they how they worked and, and helped in, in the war? Well, <laughs> Um, I think memes, you know, uh, I, just in case somebody, uh, some of the listeners might not know this, might not be familiar with uh, internet culture as much. Memes are ju just these sort of humorous um, pictures um, on the internet uh, about, you know, uh, certain situations or whatever. And there have been a lot of these sometimes funny, sometimes mildly offensive, uh, perhaps, uh, memes going around on Ukrainian social media. And I think they have, uh, for one, helped a lot of Ukrainians, you know, deal with all of these um, very contrasting emotions. And they have helped keep our spirits up because 
Um, I remember when, you know, when the invasion, the full-scale invasion started on the 24th, and it was, you know, early in the morning, and obviously I, you know, I opened Twitter, and people were panicking there, but, you know, some of them were also sort of, you know, sort of very grimly joking, which, which was, you know, very weird, but there was a lot of, you know, sort of slightly hysterical laughter going on, um, and a lot of... I think of Ukrainians do use these memes to sort of help themselves uh, cope with everything that's going on. And um, I think a lot of them, uh, I think a sort of meme-like word, uh, which is even in the Urban Dictionary now, um, which Ukrainians have come up with, it's for the Russian missiles, it's called bledina. And it's, it's sort of a rude word, but it's become immensely popular. And it's like, it's we realize you know the danger and the horrors of the war and everything but sort of joking about it and giving the things that are you know elements of destruction and you know the very things that are being used to kill us giving it sort of a condescending um funny name it's sort of psychologically i guess makes it easier and another really hugely hugely popular meme which you know which was absolutely huge especially in the first months of the war um in on ukrainian social media uh was called chmonya and it's 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 a funny story because um at the beginning of the war uh occasionally when uh, russian soldiers would surrender or um you know they would be held captive uh users on social media would occasionally post those photos and i remember there was even a huge sort of ethical debate on you know on if you know posting these photos of russian prisoners of war uh, was ethical or not as you know there was a lot of discussion about that but one of the photos it was just really funny because the russian invader pictured he just sort of looked really really miserable and sad and he was you know sort of wearing these very loose fitting ill fitting clothes and looking really miserable and I think because, you know, obviously a lot of people in Ukraine at that moment, we were, you know, really fearful for our lives as we still are. Just the sort of really funny image of a very miserable looking um, invader, it sort of became popular because it let us, you know, make fun of the thing which, you know, we feared the most at that time. And so Chmonya, he became like this huge sensation on the Internet People would, you know, we would cosplay him. They would do makeup tutorials on TikTok on how to look like this essentially 40-something guy um, in military clothing. And he, you know, he became a huge sensation on the internet. People would write, you know, fanfics about him or whatever, make funny videos on TikTok where, you know, he would visit um, different cities in Ukraine as a tourist and not as an invader. And, you know, they would Photoshop him into pictures of, you know, Ukrainian hotels or whatever. And it's, you know, when when I, you know, start describing it, it does seem, you know, slightly uh, surreal and, you know, not very funny. But at the time when a lot of people were very on edge, um, I mean, they still are, but I think we're sort of getting used to it now. Uh, But in these, you know, months of, of, very intense fear and um, panic. It, you know, stupid uh, humor like that. It did help keep our spirits up a lot. So, so very thankful for those memes. Well, thank you very much, Alexandra, for that. That was absolutely fascinating. Roland and Francis. I mean, Roland, we we, we had a conversation the other day about about memes and NAFO and so on in, in the Ukraine war. I wonder if you've got questions for Alexandra. To be honest, my questions aren't really about memes. My question is about what what it feels like in Kiev at the moment. Um, Because I haven't been... I was last in Ukraine over a month ago now. And and I'm quite curious about how atmospheres have changed. Has it still changed? Um, Kiev was still quite, I would say, quiet. You know, it, it, it wasn't the kind of energetic party town that it used to be. But it was kind of coming back to life when I was there. Um, so could you tell us about atmosphere, morale and oh, and also the petrol crisis? Um, can you get petrol yet? These are, I think, the, the things I'm interested in. Everyday life. Uh, well, um, you're right. Kiev is still a lot quieter than usual. And um, there is sort of a sense of, I don't know, 
uh, going about life as usual, but in a sort of a defiant way, in a sort of, you know, in a very proud, we know we're in danger, but we're still going to get our damn coffee and we're still going to go out and get a pizza um, sort of way. Um, so there are a lot less people uh, in Kiev, especially uh, women and children. But life is sort of, you know, returning very slowly. I think a lot of people are, you know, making their way back to Kiev. Um, and a lot of restaurants are, you know, opening up again and sort of, um, you know, there there is sort of a sense that life is returning to normal, but very slowly and sort of very carefully. Um, so there, it, it just looks really odd because um, in some of the cities in Western Ukraine, um, because I, my family and I, we uh, fled uh, to Ternopil uh, in the first month uh, of the war. Um, you know, cities like Ternopil, they haven't changed all that much and they still, you know, businesses as usual over there. And it's sort of easy to forget that there's a war going on. Meanwhile, in Kiev, it's still, you know, life goes on, but you still have this very clear sense that, you know, something's not right because there are, you know, these anti-tank systems at every corner and these, you know, huge monuments being covered up with, you know, um, sandbags and things like that. And people are, you know, sort of on edge, I'd say. Um, and there is sort of, you know, a feeling that, you know, we realize that, you know, it's dangerous and the war is still happening. So it, there's definitely you know, no sense of escapism, uh, especially, you know, after the um, the attacks uh, last week and all of that. So there is a sense of you know, we're adjusting to this new normal. Uh, as for the petrol, it is still very, very difficult. There are, you know, huge, huge queues out, um, you know, around petrol stations. Um, funnily enough, you can still get um, an Uber or a taxi uh, without problems. But uh, honestly, my husband and I, we tried uh, to get refueled, but then we sort of, you know, drove around for about half an hour and realized that we, you know, we'd be burning more petrol than we could, you know, find. So a lot of people have, you know, turned to walking more. Um, but although I do have to say, um, and this is something that I've seen discussed a little bit on social media, um, a lot of people are sort of surprised when they see, um, you know, photos of the uh, shopping mall uh, in Kremenchuk, which was uh, attacked, uh, which was hit by a Russian missile recently. And a lot of people uh, I've noticed, sort of mildly pro-Russian people, have been sort of saying that it's all a hoax because there aren't a lot of cars um, around that shopping mall in the video. And I do think that this is, you know, an appropriate time to point out that Ukrainian society it's not as, you know, automobile centric as I think, uh, especially American society and a lot of Western Europe. We do use public transportation a lot. We do walk a lot. So, um, you know, not being able to get by, to get around by car, it's, it is um, causing trouble. But, you know, Ukraine, especially Kiev and big cities like that, we are sort of, you know, our public transport is holding up and so it's, it's not you know as as awful as you know a um, petrol crisis for example if it were to happen in the US so so yeah and just 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 quickly to follow up if I may um, have you detected the events further east I mean the 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 fall of, of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk um, has that in your view or amongst the people you know, affected morale or, or, or the mood? You know, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, I do feel like these past couple of weeks have been very sort of difficult psychologically because um, a lot of people are sort of learning about the deaths of a lot of their loved ones. You know, the news is sort of catching up. And there has been, you know, a lot of, uh, I think, um, sadness around that because, you know, we, I think there's like this huge new wave of um, news about yet yeah, more and more uh, soldiers being killed in action. Um, so I think a lot of people are sort of 
it does, you know, sort of make everyone a little less, you know, not optimistic because we're still very optimistic, I'd say, but it it does make people a little, you know, more sober. And I think people are a little more, you know, mildly grim and just generally sad. Um, but the thing I think um, I'd like to point out is that um, I don't think, you know, um, even large sort of military losses or, you know, strategic defeats or things like that, I don't really think that they um, sort of affect Ukrainian morale as much um, because I think the majority, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians, um, we feel like we don't really have a choice because we will sort of fight till the very end in a certain sense because we do realize that we have to keep going no matter what because not you know because we're you know so proud or whatever um but simply because uh we after we've seen you know the horrors in Irpin and Hostomel and Mariupol um we know what will happen to the people on the occupied territories so we know that we have no choice but you know to take them back somehow you know sooner or later but we will have to fight for them because you know after you know we've seen all of these war crimes that were committed on the occupied territories i think a lot of ukrainians have realized that you know this is a war for our survival and you know we can't back down no matter what because you know it's a choice between you know being killed fighting or you know dying um under russian occupation so i think i think um in that sense ukrainian morale is just it, it's it's still very high but not in a it's going to be easy to win this war way, but in a we have literally no choice but to win this war because otherwise we'll be destroyed. So, yeah. So interesting hearing your perspective on that. Um, and I imagine that you were talking about the impact of social media that plays a part in keeping morale perhaps higher than it would be otherwise and obviously creating that unity of purpose i had two questions about what you were saying around social media my my first is who is this who, who are the people engaging in this most is it predominantly young people sort of millennials and younger or is it really across the board has the war brought a lot of older people onto social media platforms that wouldn't have been there before so that's my my first question and my second one was you were talking about some of the memes around the russian soldiers is there are there examples of sort of more self-deprecating humor amongst Ukrainian sort of memes and, and social media? Is there sort of also poking fun at, at perhaps, I don't know, even Zelensky or the political leadership in certain ways? I'm just interested in, in, in what forms it takes and whether it's all about Russia or whether there's actually some of it is, is inward looking too. So those are my two questions. Great, great questions. Um, as for, you know, sort of inward looking humor, I think there's there's a huge amount of that. And um, especially, you know, memes about Zelensky. I think that as a sort of, as a society, we've sort of, you know, decided that, you know, in the wartime, this probably, you know, isn't um, the best time to argue about politics or, you know, criticize our government for, you know, sort of minor um, mishaps. Although, you know, we still criticize it just, you know, um, not as aggressively, I'd say, as before. Um, but we still, you know, we still do laugh and joke around a lot about our politicians and even, you know, um, leadership such as Zelensky, I think it's it's a really fascinating case because these a lot of these jokes they're you know they're sort of on the line between being you know sort of lovingly mocking someone and being disrespectful and they never really uh, from what I've mostly seen they don't really cross into the disrespectful territory but they do still mock um, you know a, a lot. Um, about, you know, Zelensky's just, you know, his, um, the way he's perceived. 
uh, in the media and the way that you know he has um, remarkably stepped up to the challenge of leading um, a nation uh, through this war. And so I think a lot of it, you know, sort of makes fun of that. And also, um, uh, when when you know when the war uh, when the full scale invasion began, a lot of Russians um, they sort of uncovered. Uh, or, you know, just remembered because they were quite familiar with it, Zelensky's uh, career as a comedian. And they started, you know, sort of spreading these screenshots of, you know, his um, sometimes really silly sketches or, you know, screenshots of him in drag or, you know, um, pole dancing. There was a video um, of that too. And they sort of did it to, I don't know, lower our morale or sort of, you know, discredit him in our eyes, I guess. But it did, you know, uh, at least, you know, on Twitter, it did backfire spectacularly because um, I think, uh, especially, you know, the younger users of Twitter, which so sort of, you know, um, has something to do with your uh, first question uh, about the age. Um, I think a lot of the younger Ukrainians on Twitter, uh, and that's their social media um, app of choice, a lot of it, a lot of them, you know, they embraced, um, you know, the fact that, you know, Zelensky had this, you know, comedic persona and they started you new know, sharing the same uh screen caps and saying yes we we know that's our president he's you know he can pole dance and we love him for it you know and i so we did you know it's and it's you know another case of sort of mocking someone but also in a very loving way um and we realized that you know um he his you know rise from um comedian to I don't know, a leader of a country at war it is very surreal. And I think a lot of Ukrainians are choosing choosing to embrace that. And um, so a lot of the memes there are about our leadership, but also about, you know, ordinary Ukrainians. Um, there are a lot of jokes going around about, you know, um, an air raid uh, siren going off and people, you know, sitting around in their apartments and not going down um, to the shelters, but saying things like, um, maybe we should close the curtains at least because, you know, we wouldn't want to be hit by a missile. Uh, so I think a lot of uh, Ukrainians do make fun of themselves um, for, you know, taking risks or, you know, being slightly careless and, you know, getting used to this this horror that surrounds us every day. So a lot of humour is it is connected to that. There have been a lot of, you know, um, memes about Ukrainians sort of, you know, um, sitting in, sitting around in very sort of fragile buildings um, and refusing to go down to the bomb shelters because, you know, a lot of us don't really feel like doing it, you know, for the fifth time in a day. But, you know, sort of uh, holding on to, um, you know, religious iconography or, you know, praying or, you know, um, doing some certain, you know, like uh, superstitious things and, you know, believing that that will protect them. Uh, so I think a lot of humor um, is about Ukrainians themselves. Um, it's not really about Russians, uh, I, except for Chmonya, I guess. There haven't been like that many memes about Russians in particular, I guess because I think the sort of uh, sentiment on social media and a lot of people my age, we sort of feel like um, the less we talk about Russia, the less we, you know, we, uh, the you know, the less we engage with, with their content, um, the less, you know, that there's this feeling that we should, you know, draw a line between Ukrainians and Russians and we, you know, should sort of keep their society as far away from ours as we can. And, you know, wasting time uh, making memes of them, you know, is again, sort of living in a sort of Russia-centric um, world and right now a lot of Ukrainians are sort of rejecting that and trying to you know not think about Russians even as they're you know firing missiles at our buildings and, are, are, 
sorry, forgive me. I just wanted to jump in on that um, because it's very interesting what you say, this sort of separation between what Russia is putting out on social media and how Ukrainians are engaging with their own content. I just wanted to ask very quickly, because um, I'm conscious you're still going to answer my other question, um, is um, what, do you, what has been the Ukrainian reaction to Russian propaganda on social media? We know there's been a lot that has attempted to be put out by Moscow, who, who clearly see social media as one of the fronts in this war. Um, how effective has it been? How nuanced has it been? Or has it actually been remarkably ineffective of communicating to the Ukrainian people? Uh, well, that that's another great question. Um, there has been, you know, the Russians have been trying to sort of demoralize us, I guess, or, you know, spread, um, I'd say, overwhelmingly unconvincing um, propaganda on social media. And I think a lot of us, um, a lot of us sort of feel that knowing Russian is a blessing and a curse because on one hand we sort of obviously understand their worldview um, a lot better than arguably a lot of people uh, who don't know Russian um, but also you know having to occasionally you know bump into these really absurd sort of uh, lies or accusations um, it, it is slightly horrifying um, it is it is awful because you know when you when you see a building being destroyed with you know your very own eyes and then you see you know thousands of tweets in Russian um, from sometimes even you know from ordinary you know people on social media not just you know government officials and the like um, but you know these thousands of people saying that it's all a hoax you're all lying you're Nazis or whatever it is it is very upsetting i'd say so i feel like a lot of ukrainians um sort of share this idea that you know if we had a choice to you know sort of immediately forget russian right you know here and now a lot of us would probably do it just so you know we don't have to constantly you know see a lot of a lot of this uh, stuff on the internet which they keep you know putting out um i so honestly i'm really confused um about russian propaganda online because there has been you know a lot of talk about you know russia using um sort of social media uh, as an instrument uh in this war and i do see a lot of you know um western influences and you know sort of alternative thinkers and tankies and you know the like with huge followings sort of you know repeating these absolutely absurd absurd lies and yet when i look at the you know the the propaganda that they're spreading it's just it just seems like you know it would be ineffective because it's also absurd you know these strange accusations about biolabs in in secret nato biolabs in ukraine and you know uh, things like that and it's it's very strange to me that a lot of people seem to be falling for it um, but Ukrainians usually, you know, we we just mock a lot of that. Uh, I think a lot of us have have been, you know, um, we consider being banned by uh, Simonyan uh, and um, other people like her as, you know, a badge of honor. And there is even a subset of um, foreigners who are also, you know, doing this good work on social media and uh, essentially calling out um, Russian officials. Uh, on their lies and essentially sometimes I don't know I I wouldn't probably use the word bullying um, in this context but it is um, it is sort of you know um, it is essentially bullying a little um, but they do it you know for good reasons and they do um, sort of uh, confront a lot of uh, Russian ambassadors on Twitter and these sort of group of um, foreign foreigners on Twitter who are, you know, harassing Russian uh, officials and making fun of them and, um, you know, uh, doing stuff like that. Uh, they call themselves uh, NAFO, which is the North Atlantic Alliance, North Atlantic Fella Organization, um, which is a fascinating phenomenon because it's something that I think um, 
Ukrainians on social media, this isn't something that, you know, is popular among Ukrainians and Ukrainian speaking users uh, of the Internet. But it is um, something that's become, you know, sort of uh, a very um, interesting, iconic meme among foreigners and non-Ukrainians who support Ukraine. Um, Because this sort of, I don't know, informal group of users on Twitter, they, um, they sort of make memes, uh, usually using um, pictures of dogs, um, and they sort of, you know, debunk Russian propaganda online, but they, and, you know, a lot of it is silly and absurd, but they also, you know, raise a lot of money uh, for the foreign and Georgian legions, and they're doing very good work in, in a very interesting way. So I think that's one of, you know, the cases of what warfare maybe like today, especially, you know, for people who aren't in Ukraine and aren't able to, you know, um, get involved directly, a lot of them use social media to, you know, sort of help the cause, which I find, you know, absolutely beautiful and very encouraging. And as a Ukrainian, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you very, very much for that, Alexandra. That was absolutely fascinating. I just wanted to ask, um, when, when we were discussing before before you came on, um, you said how the resignation of Boris Johnson is one of the big points of discussion at the moment in Ukraine. Do you have any questions for us that, that we could be helpful in answer? Sure, sure. Um, I, as any other Ukrainian, I am also, you know, concerned as to how um, how will... Uh, Johnson's resignation sort of will it affect the amount of you know support that Ukraine will be getting from the UK because the UK has been you know a great partner to us and a great source of support um so do you think that will impact it in any way or do you think the general public might be you know too um sort of uh tied up in you know your own internal political affairs and might that sort of distract from Ukraine, or might that sort of make people care less? What What do you think? What is your prognosis? At Roland and Francis Field, this one, if that's all right. I think in short, it will not affect the British support for the Ukrainian cause. Boris Johnson has indeed been an enormous champion and set the tone successfully for how the war, I think, was uh, would be seen existentially across Europe and indeed in Britain. And that will be his great legacy in relation to the war. I've said in the past, um, and I still stand by this, that if there had been a more temperamentally cautious leader, perhaps such as Theresa May, still prime minister, that had been slower to respond, that may well have, have condemned Kiev to being seized early by the Russian forces and, you know, possibly even worse. So I think that will be his his great legacy. But by having defined how the war is seen in this significant way, I don't foresee any Tory leader who succeeds him uh, changing course in any way. I think, um, if anything, there is a chance that if Ben Wallace, who is currently the Defe- Defence Secretary, runs, then he would, uh, and he has a, st- a strong chance of winning. And of course, that would lead to an even more harder um, response, possibly in relation to Ukraine. In terms of how the public are reacting to all of this, I don't think it changes either their attention on the issue. Of course, to some extent, it's inevitable that, that the headlines will be grabbed more by what's going on in, in domestic politics here, particularly with the cost of living crisis and everything else. But broadly speaking, I think people are still very, very much engaged in this issue. Uh, we certainly haven't noticed a, a drop off in, in engagement on that, um, looking at our our metrics. And so um, I think broadly speaking, it shouldn't be a concern to our Ukrainian listeners uh, that that to think that with Boris Johnson's removal, this will fundamentally change anything. Far from it. I think there will be a continuation of of the policy. And indeed, it will be the all candidates now standing to succeed Boris Johnson will be very, very vocally saying that they will intend to support the the um, uh, Ukraine in its time of need. So hopefully that will answer your question. But no doubt Roland will have some thoughts as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um... I think France is right about the um, the consensus in Britain. I think it's absolutely kind of the one thing, the one thing that, that the, 
the British political establishment can, on all sides of the House, be it Conservative, Labour, different parts of the Conservative Party, everyone is pretty much behind the Ukraine policy. Um, so I think Ukrainians have no reason to fear that Boris Johnson going is going to change that. It's not, it's not a particular Boris Johnson thing. It, it, it is about Britain. But, but um, and this is the interesting thing. So I spoke to Pavlo Klimkin, who is a, um, as you know, the, the um, foreign minister um, of Ukraine for, for many years after 2014 under Poroshenko. Um, and he knows, this is a guy who knows a thing or two about trying to get Western governments to support Ukraine during a war, because it was his job last time. Um, and he said, well, look, it, it, it's not about British. We know the British support is staying. We're very grateful for that. But, but there's, there's two things. One is, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, so apologies to Pablo if I'm putting words in his mouth. But he basically said, look, one thing is, you know, he, he has this great kind of um, appetite for theatre, this theatrical sense, you know. And, and I, I would say a lot of us here might be a little bit, you know, sick of that. And, and it's kind of backfired. And a lot of people in Britain are now calling it, you know, we're sick of the act, Boris. But, you know, there's a place for that. And that theatre kind of propelled him to the front. And, 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 and that has a political knock-on effect um, which is that he was kind of, at least from, you know, seen from Kiev, he seemed to be out in front ahead of other Western partners, including the United States. Um, and those who, you know, know how conventional British diplomacy works, I think there probably is a bit of a wariness in Kiev, um, thinking, well, what if you get a British prime minister who is, you know, as Francis said, slightly more temperamentally cautious is going to be more kind of in lockstep with the United States allowing the United States take the lead because I think there is a sense um, and I think historians when they get into the archives will tell us whether this is true or not but a sense that his 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 willingness to get out there in front um, maybe maybe prodded Amer- the Americans along a little bit um, so it, it will be interesting to see I definitely don't think there's going to be a shift in 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 British attitudes to the war um, but that particular kind of appetite, that appetite to be the centre of attention um, and so on, I think um, definitely did have an impact that was that was genuinely, genuinely appreciated in Kiev. Yes. Uh, yes. And I, I think also just to add on that, I don't think um, we can underestimate the importance of having a sort of theatrical figure um, just in terms of boosting morale, not only for Ukraine, but also amongst certain people in, in, in Europe as well. And he certainly brings a certain appeal, which, um, which draws the cameras. And that's obviously been very good for the Ukrainian cause. And, uh, it will be very challenging, I think, for any successor to Boris Johnson to, to live up to that. But there's another element to this as well, which is um, to Roland's point about persuading other governments to act. Um, there are two ways of doing that. That. One, of course, is to go out ahead and, and and forge ahead, which I think is what Boris Johnson's approach was. The other is by brokering uh, and 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 talking behind closed doors um, and trying to negotiate things. Um, it may well be that a successor Tory leader will be more successful at that. May will be able to forge slightly less strained relations with France or Germany, for instance. I don't think we should underestimate um, that importance of that political skills in times of crisis and so it's too early to say what the impact of that could be but i think it is no doubt going to be significant and particularly in in any future peace talks um it will be hugely relevant the ability of a prime minister to to broker and to bring the sides together um, and to uh, forge a consistent line from the West, hopefully one that is robust and that that um, uh, gives Ukraine what it what it wants, um, as opposed to to a leader who perhaps hasn't quite got that sort of nuanced, subtle ability uh, to, of, of working with with Western partners, which I think is, is often a criticism of, of, of Boris Johnson. So um, it will have an impact this, certainly. But in terms of the broader strategy, the broader interest on the things, I think in the short term, at least its impact will be will be minimal. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Roland. We're starting to come just to the end of our time, I think. But So, um, Alexandra, I'll ask you for your reaction to that, and then I'd like final thoughts. What should our listeners be thinking of in the fu- in, over the weekend from Roland and Francis? And then, Alexandra, we'll return to you for, the, for, your, for your final thoughts. So just very quickly, what, what's your reaction to what Roland and Francis said? Well, I have to say that was very enlightening and also comforting. So I think um, I'll pass it on to other Ukrainians who are, you know, very panicky right now um but but 
I, I do hope that, you know, uh, that it will turn out for the best. So thanks. Thanks, Alexandra. Um, so Roland and Francis, what should our listeners keep in mind um, over the over the coming weekend? Um, what should I, I mean? I'm, I'm going to say kind of the same thing as 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 I said yesterday. I mean, if you're if you're looking at the progress of the war, it's about this so-called operational pause, but it's it's about this battle for control of um, of logistics. Right? Can can the uh, Ukrainians and, and these Western weapons really throttle? that um that huge huge train of of shells that is feeding the the russian artillery orchestra um or not or will the russians find a way to counter um those western weapons um that that is the big um military aspect of this to watch over over the coming weeks yes and just to echo that one of the question marks uh, that we are still yet to see is whether Russia has the capacity to rebuild. We've spoken in the past about how um, Patrick Sanders, uh, the uh, chief of the defence staff, who's just taken over, was making the point that Russia often ends wars better than it starts them, um, which is obviously a, a cause for concern. And just when speaking about this matter of, of weapons, Germany has said today that it doesn't want to, and I'm quoting here, plunder its own military um, as it refuses to send certain armoured vehicles to Ukraine. And I think this is a a point that is going to become increasingly relevant um, in, in the next you know, phase of the war is, of course, Western governments have funneled considerable weapons into Ukraine. Um, that has had an enormous impact. And indeed, I think that, you know, certainly in Britain, those weapons are, are being produced and, 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 and churned out at a considerable rate. But there is also this concern that if this were to escalate into something even bigger, that all, not all of those weapons can be in, in Ukraine. They need to be in, uh, in Poland. They need to be in Germany and other things. And, and this, will, this will have an impact. You know, it takes time to develop these, these weapons and to build them at the kind of pace. And that would be my final thoughts, which is if the West is really, truly serious about supporting Ukraine in the way that Ukraine requires for this next phase of the war, then I think there's a very strong case for really it needs to be showing that it's willing to convert factories into turning weapons out much more quickly. Because it seems to me that this is still happening at a rather slow pace um, across the Western world. It is not showing that it is really getting a handle on this supply issue. Um, and I think that, you know, it, as President Zelensky has been saying for weeks now, the biggest issue is, is, is around the supplies that they have, the weaponry that they have. It's not about manpower at this stage. And so uh, the West, I think, just needs to show that it's serious. And I've not seen enough impetus in that regard coming out of the G7 that one might expect, but hopefully will in, in, in the coming weeks. Well, thank you, Roland and Francis, for that. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for um, giving us your, your thoughts and answering our questions. And I hope we answered yours sufficiently as well. Um, would you like the final words then? Oh, thank you for having me. It's been um, a pleasure. And um, I don't know, I guess my final uh, thoughts would be that you know i hope that all of our listeners uh will keep their eyes and ears on ukraine um you know and i think that the interest in ukraine and the fact that you know there were so many that there still are so many people who are non-ukrainians who might not have even you know known a lot of ukrainian history uh before the events of this year they have tuned in and they have you know pretty much sort of um, forced a lot of uh, politicians into supporting Ukraine uh, and into, you know, being at least more active in their support. So uh, I know that a lot of people outside of Ukraine feel like, you know, they're not doing enough to help, that, you know, they're not, you know, they can't actually get involved directly. And it's, you know, it's difficult to be in a in the role of a spectator uh, in a situation like this. But I would just like to say that as Ukrainian, um, we we appreciate all of the support and the fact that so many people are willing to learn more about Ukraine, to listen to Ukrainian um, content creators and experts and whatnot. It is truly, you know, very uplifting and it does give us a lot of comfort and it boosts our morale in ways that you can't even imagine. So it's been a pleasure and 
thank you so much for the wonderful work you do. It's it's really it means a lot to us. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.